Hi, this is Jenna. And this is Kelly. And you're listening to ODFM. This episode is One Denture from Murder. story is about John George Haig, who was born in July of 1909 into an affluent conservative family in Yorkshire, England. We're going overseas. We're going overseas, baby. It's not even a minisode. We're international. So he grew up attending classical music concerts and he was academically successful, being awarded several scholarships in his early life. So he's, you know, well to do. He grew up in a fanatically religious household under the Plymouth Brethren religion. I've never heard of that. No. Had you heard of it? No. The Plymouth Brethren? Yeah. So I read a little bit about it, but household references to the Lord were used frequently to remind him that he was being watched by a disapproving God. So the God in that this religion sounds, is not... That sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds... <laughs> yeah. A little overwhelming. So his parents even built a seven-foot fence around the house and wouldn't let him bring home any school friends in case they may be contaminated by the outside world. What? It's, it's, <laughs> it's very fanatical. <laughs> and it was almost like so fanatical that they weren't allowed to even... I mean, it wasn't like you... I think they did go to church, but I think it was just like you weren't supposed to consort with anyone outside of it type of thing. It was very strict. Well, but it wasn't a very well-known. So no. who could they consort with? Yeah. There was no consorting. <laughs> it's like a cult. There's no one to talk to. So his childhood was bleak and lonely. Shocker. <laughs> Seriously? <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it mildly. And his only friends were his few pets and caring for the neighbor's dog. So at least he liked oh animals. I know. Who's Poor your dog. bestie? The dog. <laughs> oh, you have a dog? No, it's my neighbor's dog. It's not even my dog. No, but he's my God. friend. I know. Well, this guy's off to a great start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about nature versus nurture type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Does your environment shape you? How you turn out? Yeah. yeah kind of. A little bit. Yeah. The Plymouth Brethren were purist and anti-clerical. So it was almost like they didn't want a... Anti-clerical? Like yeah. they don't do keep records? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Records. <laughs> it's like... So that's true. Write that, shit down. <laughs> we don't well, want records no of our past. Oh my god! <laughs> exactly. It's it was. It was almost okay. like they didn't want a um, a head of the church type of thing. Okay. So no one's even running this gig. I know. <laughs> I don't get it. So who's to tell you that you're doing it wrong? Right. Well, they did say the Bible stories. Bible right. stories were their only form of acceptable entertainment. So they went by everything biblical. Yeah, I don't know. That's. I think you should use entertainment loosely. <laughs> <laughs> Very loosely. I mean, yeah. Yikes. And there are some pretty racy Bible stories, so yeah. I don't know if that's really appropriate either. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Especially the First Testament. Even participating in sports was forbidden. Jeez. I know, this poor fucking kid. <laughs> oh my God. John's father believed the world was evil and they needed to keep the family separate from it. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. Just... So generous. This poor kid. This poor kid. Did he have brothers and sisters? Nope. Only child. Oh, I know. I know. It's just worse. Oh my god. 
Look at this. His father had a permanent blue blemish on his head that he claimed was the result of sinning in his youth. So, <laughs> so it's like he had a permanent bruise of some sort, you know, some blue mark on his head. Like from a Sharpie? Which <laughs> I never washed off. Oh, my God. So this poor kid grew up terrified of developing a similar sign of the devil upon his own forehead for even the slightest <laughs> wrongdoing. Mark. Yeah, he thought he was totally, he's like, oh, right. dad you're is bad. With, you're going to end up with a blue freckle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and that's bizarre. I know, so weird. But his mother apparently didn't have one, and so he asked why, and he was told that she was an angel, and that's why she didn't have a similar mark. Same. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. Obviously. Hey, I don't have any blue marks. You got any blue marks? We are angels. We're so angelic. Yeah. <laughs> I have not been accused of being an angel. But John claimed, so this is the kid, he's claimed he suffered from recurring religious nightmares in his childhood. I can't imagine why. Shocker. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, these dreams were dominated by blood, but the memories of those were vague until a car accident in 1944 that caused the dreams to return. Oh, and wait till you hear about these. These are creepy. In his dream, he saw a forest of crucifixes that gradually turned into trees. And at first they appeared to be dripping dew or rain from the branches of these trees. But then once he would get closer, he realized it was dripping blood. And the entire forest would begin to writhe and the trees oozed from blood. And there was a guy that went to each tree collecting the blood and he would bring it to him in his dream and tell him to drink it. Oh so, my! I know, yeah. messed. That's up. some messed up shit. <laughs> yes, and well, from the age of six, John would lick his scratches and wound himself to suck his own blood. Eh? <laughs> so messed up. Ah. Uh, yeah. And and he claimed it was because of these dreams. What do you say? About I don't. That, right? I I don't even have a snarky remark for that. No, That's just it's just seriously messed up. Yeah, he's being um, groomed. To a life oh of my God, yes. craziness. Okay. Ooh, a turning point in his childhood and his developing psyche came when John realized that no mark of the devil was going to appear on his forehead after he had lied or committed some other questionable action. So he figured that out. <laughs> he figured that out. He like lies. I swear, I didn't talk to the neighbor. And then he runs inside to look like, in a mirror and be like, is there anything? No, Do you no. see anything? Ah, dad is lying to me. Weird. I know. So his belief swung so thoroughly to the other side of those that he was raised with that he began to believe he was invincible and could get away with anything. Okay. That's that's a lot of extremes. Although everything Mm -hmm. in the Bible is very extreme. It is. There's there's not a lot of gray area. It's true. It's very hardcore. It's very true. Oh my God, this poor kid. He became such a manipulative and compulsive liar that he was prone to say just about anything to get himself out of compromising positions, which... That sounds about right, yeah. When you're raised in a super strict environment, you tend to kind of rebel. Wow. Okay. This was big. Yes, his rebellion was huge. Despite his contentious upbringing, he became an accomplished pianist, learning it all at home on his own because he had nothing else to do. He had the Bible. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Damn, that's impressive. It is impressive. See, you can use all this loneliness and, and time for good. Yes. And, and we're complaining about our quarantine when he right. had this whole childhood of basic quarantine. Right, exactly. And I've been like, dude, since March, I haven't been able to. <laughs> this is so hard. Right? 
This poor kid. He even won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield, England, and another to Wakefield Cathedral, where he became a choir boy, which apparently was a big deal at this place. It was hard to get into. Good for him. Yes. So after finishing school, he was an apprentice at a firm of motor engineers. And And that's allowed? That yeah, apparently. I don't get it. <laughs> I know. I think he he kind of got out from under his parents' thumb at this point. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, and so after a year of apprenticeship, he took jobs in insurance and advertising. However, at 21, he was fired after being suspected of stealing from a cash box at one of those jobs. Yeah, that's kind of a no-no. Yeah, even though he was doing good and he had like a good, I don't know. It seemed like he had a full future ahead of him. Also. Um, if you're trying not to lie and be devious, advertising is not. Yeah. <laughs> they will teach you to lie and be That's devious. That's not the career you want, right? I mean, Good point. We both know this well. <laughs> right? So, uh, whatever. Yeah, okay. well. In uh, July of 1934, John married his 23-year-old girlfriend, Beatrice Betty Hamer. Okay. That same year, the now 25-year-old John was jailed for fraud. I guess he's not so invincible, huh? No. While in jail, Betty gave birth to a baby girl who she put up for adoption and subsequently left John. Oh! John's very conservative family ostracized him because of the divorce. Wait, wait, wait. They ostracized him because of the divorce, not because he went to jail for fraud? No. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Good point. Um, I feel like (laughs) Wait a minute. Your priorities are a little off. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. After serving just two years, he was released from prison and moved to London, where he became a chauffeur to William McSwan. 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 That's that's a... (laughs) Yes. Decided to become a chauffeur. That's a very different career move. But whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And William McSwan was a wealthy owner of amusement arcades. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I mean, with the name like that. Why not? Yeah, I, I imagine one of those swan rides, you know, the little... <laughs> yes. What? You sit in the little, and it goes around in a circle. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. the big swan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or it's a really, really bad menu item for McDonald's that did not... Oh, 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 oh the big swan. <laughs> kind of like the McRib, but it's... Oh, God, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. It just didn't go over. The ugly duckling. The ugly duckling of burgers. Oh, he also worked for McSwan doing maintenance on those amusement machines. And shortly after his chauffeur stint, he pretended to be a solicitor going by the name of William Adamson. I'm guessing solicitor in the terms of like a lawyer. Solicitor. Okay. I'm guessing. I'm just... It didn't really... I probably should have looked it up, but you know. Whatever. He did a different thing. Yeah. He did something new. He frequently sold fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his, quote, dead clients at below market rates. So he made up people and then sold stock shares. (laughs) Eventually, he was caught when one of his clients noticed he had misspelled a town name on his letterhead. An unlikely mistake for an educated solicitor. Dude. Spell check, spell check, yes. spell check. Being yes. from 1940s England is no excuse not to use spell check. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, at least have someone look over it for you. Right, exactly. At least yeah. get someone to proofread your stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's true. Rookie mistake. Yeah, very, very. So in 1939, he was arrested and imprisoned again because of this. And this time he was sentenced to four years for fraud. While in prison, John realized that his biggest downfall was that he had let his fraud victims stay alive to report the crimes. 
That's where it went wrong. It wasn't the spell check. (laughs) And it wasn't actually doing the crime. It was leaving people alive to discover the crimes. (laughs) So what you're telling me is the whole rest of this story could have been avoided (laughs) had he just spell checked. Yep, had he just spell checked. See, people, spell check. It'll keep you out of becoming a very bad, bad man. (laughs) Uh, John became intrigued by the crimes of the French murderer... Georges Alexandre Sarre, who had. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what did you say? Okay, I'll, I'll Americanize it. George Alexander Serret. That makes it very okay, American. Thank you. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, that's American. Got that one now. He had disposed of his victims' bodies using sulfuric acid in 1925. Oh! Yeah, and he was inspired by this, this technique. This so, technique. <laughs> Technique. We're going to go with technique. We'll go with clean word of technique. While still in prison, John had lots of time to think, which he used to his advantage. As one does when they're too smart, probably, and have nothing to do. Oh, boy. Yeah. He devised a method of destroying the body of a victim by dissolving it in acid, and he believed that if no body could be found, then no conviction would be achieved, and he decided that he would go after rich, older women once he's out of prison. Oh, my. I mean, he was coming up with a full-on plan. So glad they gave him this time to think. I know. Well, get this. It gets even better. His resources in prison were beyond what I realized there were. He experimented in the prison tin shop with field mice and sulfuric acid. They had that available to him? They had it available. They're like, here, would you like to do some chemical experiments while you're here? (laughs) Would you like to play with chemicals? Nobody thought this was a bad idea. (laughs) Apparently not. He figured out that it only took about 30 minutes for each rodent's body to completely dissolve. And so from those experiments, he was able to calculate how much acid and time it would take to dissolve a full-grown man. Wow. (laughs) Again, I'm so glad he was using this time to think about what he did wrong wisely. I know. Where, you know, instead of coming up with a plan for his future, because he is so smart and doing God knows what he, he could have done. He had time to plan and experiment Mm -hmm. and finalize his new crime. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So inspiring. In 1943, John was released from jail and he found employment as an accountant with an engineering firm. I mean, they probably didn't have the background checks we do now. So they were just like, okay. I also was like, apparently you don't have to have certain degrees (laughs) because he's just. Be whatever you want. Today I'm going to be a teacher. Today. (laughs) Tomorrow I'll be a baker. Yeah, I feel like I'd be a great engineer. I'm going to do that for now I'm going to build a bridge. It's so incredible to me how he could find that employment so consistently, but he couldn't help trying to stop swindling people. Right. Wow. I know. So here's where we'll take a break before I tell you how John used his new macabre acid skills. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I know. I got to prepare myself. Me too. I got to take a drink. Back to acid John. Acid John. (laughs) Okay, so I alluded to this earlier, but in 1944, John was in the severe car accident where he suffered the head wound. Yeah. So the head wound he suffered was bad enough. It bled into his mouth. And... Oh, and he likes that taste. You're referred to this incident as a catalyst that reawakened those blood-filled dreams from his childhood. Almost like a romanticized event. Yes. I'm I'm kind of surprised he didn't become a vampire. (laughs) Oh... Oh, that God. Interesting. <laughs> oh, no. You say this. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. So shortly after the accident, he rented a basement space in London where he created a sort of death workshop. Oh, God. I know. It's it's like Dexter a little bit. Oh, my God. Okay. He he installed non-corrosive metal drums, carboys of sulfuric acid, a pump, tools, and protective clothing. Holy crow. And one thing this this, uh, place had in it was a drain and a manhole to the sewers. Really? Straight from the basement? Straight from the basement. Wow, this place was perfect for him. It it was so perfect. Yeah. So on September 6th of 1944, John Lord William McSwan, the guy that he had chauffeured for. Aw, come on. Old friend. It's like, come on down. So he invited him into his London basement and he hit him over the head. Knocked him out. Then he put William's body into a 40-gallon drum and poured concentrated sulfuric acid onto it. Oh. He came back two days later and found that William had been reduced to sludge. Oh, God. Which he then poured down into a manhole. Oh. I'm guessing it wasn't a well-ventilated area. Yeah, I don't know. I can't even imagine. (laughs) The smell. It was pretty rough reading this one. I would be like, oh, oh I guess I'm not having lunch today. It's <laughs> <laughs> my new diet plan. Yeah. <laughs> this is how I keep from overeating. Yeah. Just going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so feeling invigorated from the successful murder, as one Ooh. would. Invigorated. Yes, That's invigorated. A That's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> John took over William's landlord duties, telling which William, well, he watched over a bunch of properties of his very wealthy family. Okay. So John decided to take over those duties, and he told William's family that William had run away to Scotland to avoid the draft because it was during a war. Oh. Yeah, so. Convenient. Hmm. Yeah, very convenient. So eventually, when William didn't return after the draft was over, his parents became suspicious. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> where did he go? I guess the war is over. Oh, on July 2nd of 1945, John decided he'd better lure William's parents, Donald and Amy, over to the workshop because he didn't want to get caught for William being gone. So he he told them that William was coming back for a surprise visit to the basement, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! Surprise! Come on down! (laughs) So he hit them both over the head and disposed of them in the same fashion as he had with William. Oh, boy. Ugh. He then stole William's pension checks and sold the family's properties, stealing about 8,000 pounds, and then he moved into a posh hotel in Kensington. Like, why not? I've got the money wow. now. Okay. Ah, oh, this guy. John developed a gambling problem because <laughs> he doesn't have enough problems already. The least of his worries, the least of his issues. <laughs> oh, and by 1947, he was running short on money. So... Since he was running through his cash quicker than he expected, he was forced to find another wealthy couple to kill and rob. Oh, yeah. He was in a a tight spot. Yeah. (laughs) You can't just go work or something like that. You know, you... I just got the chills. (laughs) So Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose were selling a house, and John feigned interest in purchasing it. And they liked him so much, because he was so charismatic, he was invited to their flat to play the piano at their housewarming party. Oh, boy. Yeah, while there, he stole Archibald's revolver, thinking it would probably be much easier to use in future murders than his usual tactic of hitting people over the head. Always thinking ahead. Yeah, always, Good job. always planning. Good job, John. 
Uh, he felt that his basement workshop was now too small for his ventures. But it's got all the good. It's. It, it's I it's mean, it's made drain. for him. It is. Man, it's got the manhole cover. Okay. He's it's just insatiable. All right. So he rented a larger warehouse and moved some acid and drums there from the other workshop. Yeah, just uh, furthering his studio space, apparently. Like an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of art form. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Yeah. (laughs) On February 12th of 1948, John lured Archibald to his workshop, saying he wanted to show him an invention. <laughs> he suddenly is an inventor as well it's as like, an accountant, an engineer. My, my body sludger. Oh, <laughs> I, have an invention. Like, I have to show you my invention. It's very impressive. I've invented a way to liquefy fat. Oh, <laughs> which I mean, I'm kind of interested in that <laughs> to get it off of myself, but maybe not. But you'd like to keep your skin. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of a problem. That's true. <laughs> I don't want to be his experiment. While Archibald's wife waited in the car, John took Archibald into the workshop and shot him in the head with a revolver. He then ran out and told Rose that Archibald had fallen ill and needed help. So so she came in and he shot her when she entered. Yeah, yeah. Then he put the couple's bodies in drums of acid and he forged a letter from them and sold all of their possessions for 8,000 pounds. Again. Eight, that's like his number. That's his, that's his go-to. <laughs> that's the golden ticket. But he did keep their car and their dog for himself. He kept the dog. <laughs> so at least he's a dog lover. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I do respect that he like he's not an animal killer. You know, a lot of well, these people Well, he did the mice. The, oh, good point. Those yeah. poor little mises. They well, know I know. Hitting. But at least he <sighs> saved the dog. He saved the dog. I like this dog. And I'm keeping your car, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, what is he going to take the, if the dog's a good boy, where is he going to take him for a ride? Yeah, yeah good, good point. Okay, so John now appeared well-to-do with all his money he was drumming up. And uh, he lived the life of luxury, living in an expensive hotel, driving fancy cars, and wearing tailored suits. Man, so I want to live in a hotel. I know. If I'm hungry, I can sweet. order room service. Yes. Somebody else comes yeah. in and cleans. Totally. Damn. perfect, okay. right? To his friends, he was cultured and charming. He'd invite them to afternoon tea or even an evening drink at the hotel. And he took them to concerts at the Royal Albert Hall. So he was oh. like, he was very cultured. Everybody Just thought he was Don't amazing. be invited to his warehouse. Oh, don't get invited Yikes. to his warehouse. Yes. And they all liked him until he would get to know them well enough to find out about their personal properties and where they kept their savings. Like right. we were saying. Yeah. And he was super vague about how he made his money. Most believed he was an inventor because of the workshop he'd, he would talk about. And he made up details about business deals. So he was he was an accomplished liar, amongst other acidic things. God, acidic. <laughs> oh, a wealthy widow in her 60s, Olive Duran Deacon. Olive lived in the same hotel as John did. She was kind and talented, and she was the widow of a war hero and had been an active suffragette in her day, even spending a night in jail after throwing a brick through a window. Oh, she's, she's a, a badass. She's a badass women's <laughs> rights lady. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So I kind of love her. She thought of herself as an inventor. And when she heard that John worked at an engineering firm, she wanted to talk to him about an idea she had for artificial nails. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know. Oh, I no. don't want to okay. go talk to John about anything. This is a bad idea. So, of course, John sees the opportunity for another kill that could earn him more. Funds. He told her he loved her idea. 
Of course he did. Of course he did. I love your idea for artificial fingernails. And I have fingernails. a great invention on how you can remove them when you're done. Of course, it takes off the whole hand. Gross. <laughs> <but laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. <sighs> so yeah, he told her he loved it, and he asked her to come to the workshop to look at some blueprints he'd prepared for her project. Oh, don't Ugh. go to the workshop. Don't oh, go to the workshop. Olive. Shortly thereafter, Olive seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth. And her friends and family became desperate. And it was John himself who took Olive's best friend to the police station to report her missing. He's so caring. Oh, get out. Okay, so at the police station, fortunately, there was an observant female sergeant on duty who was suspicious of John's jaunty demeanor. Jaunty? <laughs> yes, he was apparently, like, all stoked to, like, let's go report Olive missing. Woo! Oh, my God. Yeah. You're a little yeah. too excited about this. Yeah. You're a little too happy. Hmm. But I thought it was kind of interesting that it was a female sergeant that I was thinking that, that too, especially because the timing mm-hmm. and the, you know, time of... Oh, was that Clyde? I heard a... Probably. He's like, you guys are doing it without me. <laughs> I miss you. Hold on. I'm going to let him in really quick. Okay. Because otherwise he'll just keep meowing. Yeah, Hold he'll on. be all sad. And he obviously has things to say. Mm-hmm. Okay, so because of this observant sergeant... Meow. <laughs> says Clyde... <laughs> So He's like, I love her. <laughs> they began investigating him, and they found John had sold off Olive's jewelry and had even taken her fur coat to be cleaned. Didn't even try to hide that it was him. Put his name wow, on it. Wow, just mm-hmm. did it. So arrogant. You hear that, So Clyde? arrogant. Right oh. <laughs> <laughs> This jerk. <laughs> Police set off to look further into John and his warehouse. They searched through rubble in the yard outside of the new workshop, where a oh, an observant pathologist spotted what he recognized as a couple of human gallstones and a set of false teeth. Wait, what? Okay, yeah. I'll give you the false teeth. But how do you recognize oh, gallstones? gallstones? I don't know. He's a pathologist. He must come across I, them. No. Gross. But, I don't know. I, also, acid does not dissolve gallstones. Yes. That's what I was just... Yes. So while sulfuric acid does melt down human bodies into sludge, it doesn't melt down plastic and that means dentures and some other strange items like gallstones. That's so In the same crazy. way. I know. Ooh. Your whole body will turn to sludge, but your gallstones I will know. stay? It makes you wonder. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It those those things are, um, are bad. Uh, I, had, yeah, I, I, I had to have my gallbladder removed. That's right, you did. Mm-hmm. So did my brother. His were really bad, too. Oof. Yeah. So, huh. Get rid of those. Come to, so even if I had wanted to, like, take that thing out and pour some acid on it, it wouldn't have done anything. It, so no. <laughs> you were planning <laughs> that, <knew>? I know. <laughs> you were like, God, I was going to, I was totally going to dissolve my gallstones, but now I can't. That's crazy. Isn't that weird? And Ooh. it doesn't dissolve plastic. Yeah. I'm trying Which, to think of, like, what other things you could have on you. I know. That, that would be plastic that he could have, like, if he hadn't removed it or whatever, yeah. like, yeah. you know. Interesting, huh? Costume mm-hmm. jewelry or... False boobs. I don't know. False boobs. <laughs> <laughs> is that a boob in your yard? <laughs> <sighs> this is gross. Upon further examination of the rubble, they unearthed 28 pounds of melted human body fat. <sighs> and part of a oh. human foot. Oh! oh. Yeah. Uh, because unlike oh. this... Unlike his previous warehouse, he didn't have easy access to a manhole oh. to dump the and sludge the sil- in. 
I knew he shouldn't have moved. Oh. I know. He I knew should have stayed. Mm-hmm. Should have stayed where he was. Couldn't mm-hmm. leave it alone. No. Mm-hmm. He wanted a bigger space. He got greedy. So he just put it in the yard. That had to smell really God, don't bad you too. Twenty-eight pounds of melted human body fat. Once inside the workshop, police found a large metal drum and several containers of acid, along with a revolver, gloves, and an apron splattered with acid. Mm. Yes, so here we're going to take another break to regather our stomachs. And when we return, I'll tell you about John's confessions in the trial. Do you own a small business or make cool and unusual handcrafted items? We love artists and small business owners, and we would be stoked to help get the word out about yours. Consider advertising with us through this podcast. It's super affordable, and our podcast reaches every corner of the U.S., even worldwide. To find out more, visit otfmpodcast.com and click on the Advertise With Us link. Let's get your creativity into the hands of people who would love it. I keep mm-hmm. thinking about 28 pounds of oh body fat. Oh my God, 28 like, pounds of body fat. I that mean, had to be more than one human. I don't know. I'm thinking mm-hmm. I probably have 28 pounds of body fat on me alone, <laughs> right? I so I was just like, so I'm like, like were these all just really fit people? Because like, yeah, well, it's what, the 1940s. <laughs> they didn't have all our processed food. Oh, right, right, right. They didn't okay. have McDonald's and McSwans yet. <laughs> right, the McSwan. <laughs> that thing's fatty. Let me just tell you. That thing is <laughs> Swan fat, nothing like that. (laughs) There's not, well, there's a couple of gross things, but not as bad as that. Oh boy, okay. After the police found all the evidence, John didn't even try to deny anything, which is surprising because he's very good at lying. Right. I wanted to see the tale he was going to spin for that one. Yeah, well, he quickly confessed to the murder of Olive, and he even disclosed that after shooting Olive, he'd had time for a cup of tea and a fried egg on toast at the cafe before putting her in her acid bath treatment. Dude, a fried egg of all things? Oh, no. Why don't you have some jello too? God. <laughs> oh, it's, it's like what you don't want to eat after a hangover, oh. that type of thing, right before an acid bath treatment does not oh. sound tasty. Oh, he told investigators that his main purpose behind the murders was his urge to drink the blood of his victims. He would slice their necks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he would slice their necks and fill a glass or two that he would drink because he was oh. into vampiric tendencies, he said. Oh. He claimed. Mm, I can't. I know. <laughs> this is so bad. Oh, But of course, we know the real reason for the killings was monetary. And he, him telling the vampire stories as a way to present himself was he was trying to start giving them an idea of him being insane. He was hoping. Uh, he was trying to still. Yes. See, he's still trying to get away with he's it. He's still thinking. Uh-huh. Yep. Ugh, he was arrested and charged with murder and became known as the acid bath murderer in the oh, press. God. Yeah. He pleaded insanity and claimed that drinking the blood of his victims had driven him mad. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so drinking their blood makes you insane. Just boiling them in acid, no big deal. <laughs> Well, and killing them first. I mean, you would have, you know, he killed them before he drank their blood. So, oh my I don't God, know. This just, uh... doesn't make sense. So, John asked one of the arresting officers what the chances of being released from a psychiatric hospital was versus prison. <laughs> so, These already... are questions you should probably ask ahead of time. Yeah, maybe. It's a little late and, now. To... And maybe not the people that are going to report exactly <laughs> what you've told them. Right, uh, exactly. 
So he confessed also to not only the murders of Olive, but also of William Big Swan and his parents, Archibald and Rose, and others, including a young man named Max, a girl from the town of Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. But those three couldn't be substantiated or found. So why would you even say anything? I know. Yeah. All the manhole ones, you think he would have just, you know. (laughs) Let's just not tell everybody. I don't know. I'm wondering if he thought it would it would go Make towards him sound his crazier if there were so many yeah. of them. Maybe. Yeah. Oh. Huh. I've been doing this for years. See how nuts I am. Yeah. Look at how crazy I am. <laughs> After his arrest, he remained in custody at a police station, and the cell door of his particular incarceration is now on display in Horsham Museum. So, <laughs> come view the cell door. Come, come look at this door. <laughs> Next time I take a trip to Europe, I'm going to make sure I put that on my <laughs> The Horsham <list>. Museum, yes. <laughs> Stop there. A British physician claimed John had what they called a paranoid constitution. I love all their old words, you know, like when you had the <laughs> consumption, it was just like anything that right, made exactly. you cough and die. My favorite was when you had the vapors. Oh, the vapors. Yes, (laughs) that is good. Oh, yes. A paranoid constitution was considered a mental illness characterized by paranoid delusions and a pervasive long-standing suspiciousness and generalized mistrust of others. I don't think he mistrusted them. No. (laughs) I don't feel like that's an accurate description. I think everybody trusted him a little too much. Yeah, but people killed him out of paranoia. He wasn't afraid of them. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't fit him at all. Yeah, and they said that people with this personality disorder may be hypersensitive, easily insulted, and habitually relate to the world by vigilant scanning of the environment for clues or suggestions that may validate their fear or biases. To me, that sounds like a detective. (laughs) Yeah, this this does not fit this guy at all. Whose idea was this? This is crap. This doctor doesn't know shit. The doctor added the absolute callous, cheerful, bland, and almost friendly indifference of the accused to the crimes which he freely admits having committed is unique in my experience. (laughs) So basically, the psychologist doesn't. Right. He's like, yeah, it doesn't fit anything. This one's unique, but I'm going to give it this name. John mistakenly believed that if the bodies couldn't be found or identified, that a murder conviction wasn't possible. But despite the absence of bodies, there was still enough forensic evidence for him to be convicted for the murders because of what the foot the 28 pounds of the gallstones fat, alone the gallstones <laughs> convicted by gallstones after the trial it took the jury just minutes to find him guilty and he was sentenced to death he was so meticulous in details that while awaiting his execution he asked the warden if he might meet with the executioner ahead of time to make sure his weight was accounted correctly in calculating the drop from the gallows So the warden assured him, though, that the executioner was quite experienced and would make proper provisions without having to meet him. (laughs) Dude, I got this. It's not my first execution, okay? okay? I've broken plenty of neck. You're okay. I've broken plenty of neck. (laughs) (laughs) But John was so charming that he made friends even in prison. The police liked him. The chaplain who prayed for him minutes before his execution had nothing but nice words to speak of him. What the hell's wrong with these people? I know. And his parents still believed God would forgive him. And even the judge at his trial thought John was so interesting that he decided to take his own retirement in the same hotel John and Olive had lived in. All these people are weirdos. They were so into this guy. What the hell? His parents thought that God would forgive him. He wasn't allowed to have friends. He wasn't allowed to be divorced. (laughs) But... God will forgive you for putting a ton of people in acid. It's okay. And he didn't even get a blue mark on his head. 
I mean, no. I can't even. <laughs> you could have at least had that. So you've heard of Madame Tussauds, right? The yes. wax museum. Okay, <laughs> that'll melt really well. Yeah. Back then, she they were very famous too, and they I guess they have museums all around. I did not know that. I didn't either. I really I thought it was just a Vegas thing, but apparently yeah, not. Same. So they came into his cell and spent three hours making a life mask for the wax model they put up the day after his death. The wax dummy even wore clothes he specially chose for it for himself. That's <laughs> sick. Isn't that crazy? What is wet? Okay, this He's is all like... loving it. I know. It's like he's Ripley's like the, Believe It or Not, but with... He's like the Ted Bundy of, like, England. Like, yeah. everyone just is like... Yeah, they're enthralled by him. So John was hanged on August the 10th of 1949 after he was allowed a glass of brandy. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad and that, you know... As they poured it, he said, make it a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be shy. Don't be shy. <laughs> it's my last one, people. And they're like, okay, John, we love you. Oh, my God, that's just crazy. <sighs> At the Museum of London, a collection of John's grisly relics are open for public viewing even to this like day. Like the gallstones? <laughs> including. <laughs> oh, come on. I was kidding. <laughs> including the gloves and apron John used to protect himself from the acid, as well as olives, gallstones, and dentures. <laughs> and the revolver. And you can go see oh, the dentures. Oh. You can get, and the gallstones. I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah. Oh, my God. The interesting okay. thing is, he's he was very good looking, you know? He's the Ted Bundy of England. <laughs> he is the Ted Bundy of England. And I think he was just super charming. Everyone was just like, I can't believe you did all this. And you're yeah, still he so... he can't possibly be this guy, so... Yeah. I know. We kind of need to go there. Wouldn't that be fun? Go to London to go check out the Grizzly... I, I tell you, I would go see that before I would go see the cell door. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I mean, the cell door isn't all that exciting. Right. And it's a, a different one than these. And that is the end of the story of the acid bath murder. Oh, my gosh. Sources for this episode are medium.com, crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, capitalpunishmentuk.org, murderpedia, thehistorypress.co.uk, all that's interesting.com and Wikipedia. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you all. Um, please join us again next week for another episode. Stay odd. Stay odd. And Stay odd. if you want more content, don't forget to look at us on Patreon and, and consider becoming a fan so that you can listen to all the mini shows we've been coming out with. Yeah, there's some yeah. there's some good info on there. There's some uh... <laughs> good tips and tricks. <laughs> there's some good tips and tricks. <laughs> some things and stories you may or may not want to know. Yeah. To see images from this story, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ODFM Podcast or on our website at odfmpodcast.com, where you'll also find a link to our merch store where you can get awesome stuff like t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. And if the weekly podcast just isn't enough to fill your ODFM cup full, join our fan club on Patreon for more content like minisodes, bloopers, and discounts at our merch store. That site is patreon.com slash ODFM podcast. And if you do love our bloopers and need more than we naturally do, which is a lot, buy us a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com slash ODFM podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of ODFM, hosted by Kelly DeVries and Jenna Swanson. Production and editing by Kelly DeVries. Theme music by Eric Swanson. 
ODFM is a satirical true crime podcast for entertainment purposes only. The stories you hear are serious and true. The comments and opinions are not. We apologize if any of our content is harmful or disrespectful. 